Well, church, there's, there's no greater question that can be asked than this. How can I, a sinful man, be declared righteous or made righteous in the sight of the eternal God who is holy and gracious and good and everlasting? How can I be declared righteous or made righteous in the presence of a holy, eternal God? And that's the issue that the Reformation addressed. You see, the medieval church, Middle Ages 500 to 1500, the medieval church had taken the purity of the gospel, the scripture, and they put layer after layer after layer after layer around it. Services were in Latin. They wouldn't give the people the scripture in, in their own vernacular or language. And so the church was held captive by superstition and innuendo and thoughts that were outside of scripture. And the medieval church had come to the place where they said that, that you are made righteous by a process that is like infusion. You are gradually made right before God in a process where you work with God in conjunction to, to, to make this happen. So you do certain things to earn the favor of God. It's, it's a gradual process. And they said that, that, that this gradual process is something that we strive for, and there can be no such thing as true certainty. Uh, that certainty is a chimera. It is an illusion. It is a pipe dream. It is a fantasy. You can never really know if God loves you until the very end. And so you live with this, in my opinion, this sort of Damocles hanging over your head, trying to discern, well, does God really love me? Is God really for me? Am I really his? Am I really going to heaven? So, so there, there's no certainty, and I, I would think there's very little joy. And so 100 years before the Reformation started, and by the way, today is, we call it Reformation Sunday, so it's the 500th birthday of the Reformation, so happy birthday to the Reformation. So 100 years before the Reformation started with Martin Luther, there was a man from Bohemia, the present-day Czech Republic, named Jan Hus. Jan Hus, or John Hus. And Jan Hus came along, and he started studying, and he read, and he studied, and he read, and he came to the conviction that you need to read the Bible. And the Bible shows us the way to Christ, and it is a glorious gospel. And Jan Hus said this, he says, said, when he was on trial, he says, God is my witness that I have never taught that of which I've been accused by these false witnesses. In the truth of the gospel, which I have written, taught, and preached, I will die today with gladness. You know, he's being condemned to death. And so they took Jan Hus, who just believed the gospel and loved the Bible, and they tied him to a stake. And they said, he sang a hymn that goes like this, Christ, thou son of the living God, have mercy upon me. And as the flames started burning his body, this is what he said. This is, since chills down my, my spine. 
he cried out, in 100 years, God will raise up a man whose cause for reform cannot be suppressed. And 102 years later, Martin Luther started the Reformation. And Martin Luther was a monk who was incredibly tormented with with this thought. He says, once again, how can I, Luther said, a less than perfect and unholy man. He says, I, I know my own thoughts and my thoughts accuse me, much less God's law. How can I, an unholy man, be made right before God? And so the system of his day, once again, said, well, you got to do, 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 do. And so Luther fasted and he, and, and he beat himself and he confessed his sins time after time after time. And he said, one person said to him, Luther, love God. And, and Luther came up with this incredible statement I mentioned three weeks ago. He said, love God, I hated him. I murmured in my spirit, how can a holy, righteous God ask me to do these things? And I can never measure up. I can never be assured of his love. I can never really know that I am in him. And so Luther was asked to read the Bible, to teach the Bible. And he came to the conviction that we come to a standing with the living God through the work of Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. And Luther went from a tormented monk to a happy man who loved Christ. And he said this, when I understood justification by faith alone, through Christ alone, I felt as if I had entered the doors of paradise. What a great statement. Enter the doors of paradise. So in Romans chapter 4, for example, we have this statement by the Apostle Paul. He's talking about Abraham, the patriarch, Genesis 15 and, or Genesis 12 and following. And he, this is what Paul says, and I think he's trying to use a little bit of apostolic humor. It's, kind of, it's not on the same wavelength as Jay Leno, but I think he's trying, he's trying to use some apostolic humor. He says, what shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefathers, according to his flesh. Next verse, verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to brag about, but not before God. That's the humor. He can brag, but he can't do it before God. Verse 3, for what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credit to him as righteousness. You see, given to him. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as is due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Then you go to chapter, the end of the chapter, verse 21. This is, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for us also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead and was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So so he's saying it was counted to him. And the word they used was imputed, not infused. Boom, it's given to you. When you trust in Christ, boom, you're righteous. You're declared righteous in his sight. and, And you're standing before him never changes. Your performance is up and down and in and out. It's like a stock return. 
hopefully a good stock return, but boom, you, you're, you're declared righteous in the sight of God. And that's why these men made these incredible statements about the importance of, of justification. Let me read our passage we're looking at this morning briefly. It's Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. Verses 4 and 10 are in the worship guide. Listen. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world and following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love. See, verse 4 is where the trumpets would blow. But God, but God, your nature, your, your objects of wrath, you, you were dead, but God. That's so good. This is just, oh man. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And by grace, you've been saved. And raised, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man can ever boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Justification, declared righteous by faith. Credit to him, righteousness. So that, that's why this doctrine, if you're doing systematic theology, this is the bullseye of Christian doctrine. Justification by faith. We've got to get this. This is what the Reformation was about. That's why Martin Luther said this, justification by faith is an article upon which the church will rise or fall. John Calvin, who died 18 years after Luther, said, justification by faith is the main hinge upon which every other doctrine turns or falls. Holds it all together, see? J.I. Packer, in our own day and age, said that justification by faith is the atlas that holds up all the other doctrines. For by grace are you saved through faith. And not that of yourselves, it's the gift of God. So you have to use illustrations to try to get this across. So let me use a couple of illustrations. And illustrations always are, are, can sometimes not work. And maybe these work, maybe they don't. Anyway, so, so justification by faith it looks to Christ, not to yourself. It looks to Jesus. And so I meet people frequently who say to me, either about themselves or someone else, they, have got, they are so sincere. I mean, they, they, they go on pilgrimages or they have Ramadan fast or they pray to Mecca five times a day or they do this or they do that. And they are so sincere. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. Sincerity is wonderful. But it's not your sincerity is the object of your faith. You've got to understand that. So if, if this were an 800 foot, if this was 800 feet above ground, and I had to walk from here um, 10 yards. And they, they brought out a board that was rotten. 
they couldn't handle an, an eight-pound baby, much less a man that weighs more than eight pounds, okay? Somewhere less than 300, somewhere more than eight. That's, that's my range, okay? So, so, so if I said to myself, self, I really believe that boy can hold you up. I mean, I really believe that boy can hold me up. I really, really I believe that boy can hold me up. You know what? You die. You die. It's not going to hold you up. Conversely, they bring out a six-foot-wide oak board this foot and a half deep, and they lay it there, and, and you, could, you could roll a tank across it. I may have limited faith. I may have halting faith. I may have issues in my life that I've got to confess to the Lord, but, 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 but the, the, the object of my faith saves me, not the depth of my convictions. Do you understand that? You can, be, you can be sincere all day long and your board will not hold you. Another illustration is, is that faith is, there are some people who grow up in a, a believing family and they know the Apostles' Creed and they know certain verses and, and it has no impact on them because they never exercise personal trust and faith in Christ. It is not just a historic faith, it is a faith of emotive commitment. Example, this chair. This chair I just got out of the orchestra pit. There was a man sitting in it, and the chair supported him, and he seemed, it seemed to do very well. As I pick it up, it's a heavy chair. I look at it, it seems to be very solid, and I say to myself, self, that chair can probably hold you up. I think that chair can probably hold you up. I'm pretty convinced that chair can hold you up. That's a good chair. It's well made. But see, it does me no good until I rest in the chair. I receive Christ. And again, these illustrations break down, I know. But there's some people here, probably, and in the worship center, who have a rich Christian background. And they may even kind of, sort of, believe that there was a God. There is a God who became man and lived a perfect life and died and rose victorious and went to heaven. And I'm, I, you, you can check that out historically, just like you believe that Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492 or King John signed Magna Carta in 1216 or whatever. But to do good, it must be an emotive commitment, volitional commitment to Jesus as you repent of your sins. So two things. It's the object of your faith, but also it's the fact that you're resting in Christ. And, and, and so that's that's why we, uh, we, we say, one of, one of the statements in the early church was that if you really believe you're saved by grace through faith alone, it's going to lead to loose living. People are going to say, hey, I can do what I want to do. And so the reformers came up with these doctrines that are biblical. Let me read just two statements from the Westminster Confession that was written 100 years after Luther died. Says, faith thus resting and receiving Christ and his righteousness is the alone instrument of justification. It's it. Yet it is not alone in the person who's justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces and is not a dead faith, but works by love. So it's when you're saved, you love people. That's why Luther said it's a busy faith. Another statement from the Westminster Confession says, these good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. See, good works, fruits and evidences of a, of a true and lively 
faith. There's a hymn that many of us sung for years, and it's an older hymn, and it says, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And I would just say, maybe it's just say this, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be in Jesus than to trust and obey. See the difference? See, if I'm in Christ, I will trust and obey because I'm mesmerized by the greatness of the cross and the forgiveness of sins. So once again, the medieval church held people by threats and judgments. There is no certainty. There is no assurance. To quote Luther again, love God. I hated him because I couldn't meet his standards. Now, I am very gladly a graduate of the Citadel. It was a good experience for me. When I went to the Citadel, five mornings, sometimes six mornings a week, we'd be standing at attention and saluting the flag at 6.30 in the morning. And then we'd go to breakfast and come back, and we would make our beds. And when you're freshman, you sweep out the barracks. And all four years, you, you dust, and you have weekend inspections, and they have... Sometimes inspections during the day to see if your bed is made well. And um, you can't cut class because if you get more than, when I was there, when you get more than 30 demerits, you have to stay in on the weekend. And if you get more than a certain amount over that, you have to walk up and down for an hour carrying a rifle, one hour for every demerit. And you get eight demerits when I was there for, for a poorly made bed, eight demerits. It's a wonderful way to go to college. So every morning I would come back and I would make my bed with hospital corners and it was tucked and it was good and I would make sure that everything was in order and because I did not want to get demerits. There's a big blue book full of rules and regulations and I didn't want to get demerits and stay in on the weekend and that type of thing. So, so I made my bed. I kept my room clean. And then I graduated. And for four years, four glorious years, I was a single man outside the Citadel. And in four years, I rarely made my bed. In four years, I rarely shined my shoes. In four years, I'm not sure I swept out the apartments I lived in that often. Because it wasn't a conviction in my heart to make beds. I operated because I was under the law. And then when I was 26, I got married. And I love my wife. And my wife likes her bed to be made. And so I gladly make a bed now because I love my wife. Now the problem is, we have eight pillows on our bed. I had one pillow to sit on. The other day I made a bed and she said, I cannot believe you went to the Citadel. I said, listen, I didn't have eight pillows to situate on the bed. We had one pillow. It was easy. It didn't have this ruffles and the, 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 the thick blankets. And anyway, it was much more Spartan. But I still make beds because I love her. When I, before I got married, I had a very limited diet. The only time I'd ever eaten broccoli before I was married is if it was fried in grease and had cheese on top. And since I've been married, I eat broccoli occasionally, sometimes even raw broccoli, which is a horrible way to try to get your 
vitamins, but raw broccoli. It's a horrible thing to do to people. But I do it because I love my wife. And then, in God's kindness, we had children. My son was born first, and of course, the first organized sport he played was soccer. I've, I've never watched a whole soccer game in my life. I'm just not a soccer guy. I'm not, I think it's a great sport. I'm just, that's just not the way I was raised. But because he loved soccer or played soccer, I spent hours playing soccer in the backyard. I was Scotland, and he was Italy. And we'd make, fun, make up rhymes about each other. And, you know, Italy drools. I'm a very good poet. Italy drools. Scotland rules. See, that? it's just good stuff, you know. And so we played soccer. And then we graduated to baseball and football and basketball and hours and hours because I love my son. I didn't have to do it. I love my son. And then we had a girl, wonderful little girl. And I had one sibling who's a boy. I've never been around girls. And my little girl started liking dolls. And I said, okay. And then about the age five or six, she fell in love with American girl dolls. And I said, great. So we went to the local toy store, and I looked at the price tag for an American Girl doll, and I had to mortgage my house. I said, good grief. And then this large toy store was having a uh, Win Molly, the American Girl doll. And so we entered. I mean, yeah, we entered. And the drawing was held on a certain day, and I was busy doing some stuff, and we got a phone call at the house saying to my wife, your daughter's name has been drawn. She can come down and get her American Girl doll. Yes. And so I was here, and she got the doll and came busting into my office, and she said, look. And I jumped up, and I acted like I just won the World Series and the Super Bowl. And I was happy because I love my daughter. Now, these illustrations break down. You see, the law holds people by threats, like the citadel. I love the citadel. By threats and potential harm. The gospel holds you by love. By love. The gospel unveils the love of of a father that is eternal and is made efficacious by the work of Jesus on the cross and is applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That's why Luther had a famous statement where he, made, where he was writing to someone who was very downcast, and he said, love God and sin on bravely. <laughs> love God. Love the cross. Love the glory of all Jesus is for us. One of my favorite hymns is by a guy named John Newton, who was a former slave trader who came to faith in Jesus and wrote Amazing Grace. But another one goes like this, let us love and sing in wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder, he has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us in his blood. He has brought us unto God. You see, he says, he has hushed the threats and denunciations of the law. All those threats and denunciations were met in Jesus on the cross. He has quenched the flames of Mount Sinai with his shed blood. So let us love and sing and wonder. Let us be glad and rejoice. So, so very quickly, I'm going to give you four realities that flow from this text about this issue. Number one, when I understand, when I understand the love of God for us, for me, a dead sinner, all glory and worship goes to God. 
twice in Ephesians 2, Paul says, you were dead. Verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses. Verse 4 or verse 5, even when you were dead in your trespasses and God made you alive together with Christ. I'm going, you know, I need to realize, and this is the great mystery. I don't fully understand it, but, 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 but God had mercy on me when I was dead. When the Lord worked in your heart and let you have ears to hear and eyes to see, you were dead. You were a decaying bone in the ground. That's what Ezekiel says. God breathed life into, into, into bones. You were dead. And if I understand I was dead, then it, all worship goes to God. God saves me by his outstretched arm. It's just so, so I was reading Colossians. We've been studying Colossians. In Colossians chapter 1, it talks about... Um, let me just read to you. Colossians 1, verse 21, 22. See, as I read this, this hangs out some hope that maybe somehow I contributed to my salvation. If you want to take pride in that. Verse 21, and, and you were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. That's a bad picture. Alienated, hostile, doing evil deeds. But he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Well, okay, I can, be, I can be alienated and hostile and doing evil deeds, and still I can, yeah, whatever. Listen to chapter 2, verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses, and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. This is a mystery. I can't, I can't explain it, but it's just nobody seeks God. God speaks to dead people and gives them life. And some of people here today are dead. And God is speaking. See, and as God speaks through the word, he gives you life. That's why we preach the Bible, teach the Bible. So, see, so I, I plead with you, dead Alienated, hostile, to understand the cross gives us forgiveness of sin and hope because Jesus died for us. It's such a simple message. It's so profound, but it's simple. God made us alive with Christ. So if I understand this, the glory goes to God. Number two, it builds humility. It builds humility. To understand the eternal love of God builds humility. I'm reading a book recently by a guy named G.K. Chesterton, who's just a great writer. He died about 1900, Brit. And he says this. Now just listen to this. This is, this is so, I just, it's so good. He said, so there's an attraction, he says, to reincarnation. But, but, but if we wait for its logical results, they are spiritual superciliousness or pride and the cruelty of the caste system. Explain. He says that the attractiveness of, of, of reincarnation, if you're Hindu, Hindus believe in four castes, and then there are the Dalots, the untouchables. So the, the caste number one are the, the priests and the teachers, and they have done something good in a former life, and so they're at the top, of the, the top of the heap, and eventually they'll be absorbed into heaven. But they did something very, very good in previous life, existences to get them up there. And then there are the warriors, and then there are the, the merchants and the businessmen, and then there are the 
lower people who deal with the, the, the lower caste, but the Delots are the untouchables and they deal with the empty latrines, they work with leather goods, and they sweep your streets and they're your beggars. And so, so really, if you're up here, it's because in a previous life, you did something very, 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 very good. If you're down here, it's because in a previous life, you did something very, 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 very bad. You're a non-person. And you're hopeful because in the next life, if you, if you stay at this level and you do the right thing, then maybe you'll come up to this level or this level in the next life. It's, it's, it's a devilish, horrendous hell system. I was walking down the streets of Singapore as a young man. And Singapore is this beautiful ethnic, multi-ethnic country. And there's a part of Singapore, that's, they call it Little India because it's, all the Indians live in that area. And I'm walking down the street. And there's this very fashionably dressed man and woman walking down the street together, Indian couple, and a, a beggar standing there, a delot, an untouchable, bedraggled, dirty, because he has to beg for his living. And if he's not begging for his living, he's empty in toilets. And so he's, he's begging, and as he was standing there, he asked for money, and he brushed the arm of the woman. And the man started screaming, and he took her to the side, and he started kicking and beating the man. The man's on the ground, he started, he was kicking him. He, he walked away, I was just going, what is going on? So I said, he's an untouchable, and he touched an upper caste Hindu. How dare he? How dare he? So, see the cruelty? But, but if, you, if you understand that God's the great creator God, you understand the cross of Jesus, listen to the next sentence. This is profound. Christianity preaches an obviously unattractive idea, original sin, which means all of us are sinners. But, but when we wait for its results, they are emotional concern or pathos and brotherhood and a thunder of laughter and pity. Listen, for only with original sin can we at once pity the beggar and distrust the king. That's good. We pity the beggar. I mean, we say this, and I think sometimes we just say it. We look at somebody that's down on their luck and they're not doing well and they didn't have our advantages and they lived in a part of the world where, where poverty is rampant and we say, there go I, save what? Save for the grace of God. But it's true. It's true. Or you look at your contemporaries, you go to a class reunion and, and you see contemporaries that have just gone down the chutes and they're not doing well, and they're in their third marriage, and they're, they're, they're unhappy, and they're, they're, they're cursing life, and they're bitter, and there you are, just a simple guy. You get up every day and you say, Father who art in heaven, get the glory today. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, give me this day my daily bread. I'm dependent upon you, Lord. Just give. And let me be a forgiving person. Because I've been forgiven much and keep me away from the evil and the stinky part of life. And you get the glory, God. And you just, you walk in simplicity and you, 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 you're, 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 you're kind and you're gracious because you've seen the, great, the grace of the cross. And here's this guy that's much more talented, graduated with a 395, went to a graduate school at Wharton, lived in Manhattan, and his life stinks. The grace of God. 
we can pity a beggar or somebody else now, and we don't trust the king. <laughs> now, why do we have checks and balances in this great nation of ours? Because the founding fathers understood original sin. That's why. Some of the greatest historical, horrendous decisions have been because people forgot original sin. Just thought of this, Neville Chamberlain comes back, waving a piece of paper, said, we have peace in our time. He met Hitler and saw something about Hitler that was very likable, and so he signed this peace treaty with Hitler and gave Hitler Czechoslovakia. And Neville Chamberlain was a Christian scientist who believed in the basic goodness of man. If we went to see somebody, we would say, I trust you as far as I can throw this gym, because we're all sent. We're going to verify everything you say and do. We have checks and balances. So, see, it, 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 it builds humility. Number three, it, it builds hope and joy. It, it just builds hope and joy and singing and laughter. Listen to chapter 2, verse 7, Ephesians, once again. He says, he says not only has, have we been saved by faith, we've been made alive with Christ. We're seated with him in the heavenly places. Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. See, in the present tense and in the world to come, we're going to have incredible blessings poured into our life. God is good. He's good now and he's going to be superlatively glorious in heaven. I'm preaching this in two weeks, but listen to me. Life is hard. There are people every day, I pray for them, my prayer list, who are dealing with cancer. A three-year-old, cancer in our church. Cancer sucks. It's hard. Our bodies fall apart. But you know, it's okay. It's okay. Because we live in a fallen world. And a day is coming when we're going to have resurrection bodies. And it's glorious. And that's going to be forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And, and so in the time being, we, we have this sense of, of joy and happiness. So Maybe I'm wrong here, but when you meet a new age person who is very delightful, um, kind of a pantheist. They are so happy about rainbows and butterflies and puppies and waterfalls and tides, as we should be. But they cannot answer the deep questions of life. We can. We can. They cannot answer simple questions that are profound that a seventh grader asks, why am I here? What is my purpose in being here? What happens when I die? We can answer those questions. They, 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 they have to run from those questions in all of their brightness and brilliance because they cannot answer them. But we can. Yeah, we say life is hard and the body falls apart and there are diseases and there's heartache and there's brokenness and there's all types of... But you know what? A great day is coming when the rightful king is going to come back and make the new heavens and the new earth. And it's all glory. So, therefore, in the present tense, 
we can be glad. Fourthly, this doctrine helps me get outside of myself. For by grace are you saved through faith, and it's nothing you've done, it's the gift of God, not of works, so that no man can ever boast. Next 10, next verse. Four, four, preposition pointing point to a previous argument. Four, because of the previous argument, we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus to do good works. We were saved to care for others. We were saved to honor Christ by the way we live. We were saved to have an eye to the coming generations. Uh, this past Friday night, one of my favorite nights of the year, the Fall Family Festival. We had uh, all these trick-or-treaters, all these community groups with their candy, and we had blow-up castles and blow-up slides, and we had uh, a concert with a guy named Slugs and Bugs. Um, and I just sat there and I saw all these beautiful children walking with their parents and their grandparents. And I, I, I said to my wife, I said, you know, when I am old and infirm and if I live here, make sure somebody puts me in a car and puts me in a wheelchair and takes me to the fall family festival. Because that's what it's about. It's about these generations that are coming. I'll stand out there in the hallway on Monday to Friday and watch the little children come to Palmetto Christian Academy. Oh, so sweet. Some of them have book bags bigger than they are. And they're coming up the halls and I'll high five them and I'll say, so glad you're here. And I'll say, another day of scholarship and achievement. And they'll look at me like, he is so weird, you know. But you know what? That, that, I, that, that just reminds, that's what we're about. That's what we're about, the next generation. See, you, 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 you get outside of yourself. If all you're thinking about is, do I measure up? Do I measure up? Do I do this? Do I do this enough? Do I do this? You atrophy. If you look at the cross and say, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe, sin and left a crimson stain, but he, he washed it white as snow. You get outside of yourself. You get happy. Fourthly, well, that's it. Here's my closing illustration. That's what I'm going to say. I always like to look at how people died. So two stories, real quickly. One is about a guy named, um, I'll tell you about Eustace the Pirate. Lived and he died in 1217. Eustace the pirate, he was a monk and he didn't do real good in the cloister, so they kicked him out of the monkhood. I don't know what you do to get kicked out of the monkhood, but he's kicked out of being a monk and he, he becomes a pirate. He starts raiding the coast up and down, or cities up and down the coast of England. He, he, he kills people, he, he pillages, he's a bad dude, Eustace the pirate. And so uh, finally in 1217, he is involved in this naval battle and he's overcome. And the people that um, take him captive, put him to death on the, on the, in his ship. They just chop his head off. And then they took his head and put it on a pike and went from village to village saying, Eustace the pirate is dead. Eustace the pirate is dead. This is what happened right before they killed Eustace the pirate. So do you have any, any final words? And this is what he said. He said, never again in this world 
wicked traitor, shall you deceive anyone with your false promises. Talking to himself. Talking to himself, a wicked traitor, shall you deceive anyone with your false promises. A life horribly spent. Conversely, on the front of your worship guide is a picture of a guy named William Tyndale. William Tyndale died in 1536. William Tyndale was a scholar who was a teacher. He learned Latin and Greek and Hebrew, and he read the Bible, and he became convinced that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone. And so he was tutoring and teaching some very wealthy, or, or children of very wealthy people, and they were committed to the medieval church, and Tyndale started saying what he believed, and one of the people admonished him, and they said, Brother, or Mr. Tyndale, uh, what you're saying is horrible. He said, no, it's not horrible. People, he was convinced that people need to have the Bible in their own language. Some of you have the Tyndale study Bible. People have the Bible in their own language, and he made this statement. This is one of the greatest statements ever made. He, made, he said this to this ecclesiastical, high up, very wealthy man. He says, sir, I defy the Pope and all his laws and if God spares my life, I will cause a boy who drives the plow to know more of the Word of God than you do. <laughs> I, I'm going to give the Bible to somebody in their language. I'm going to teach them to read so that this, this boy this driving the plow behind an ox will know more of the Word of God than you do in all your ecclesiastical finery because I'll have the Word of God. And so they threatened his life. He went to Antwerp for nine years where he worked with refugees and was a pastor. And they said, come on back. We're going to have a disputation. Let you talk to us and show us our error. And so he came back under the uh, supposedly the promise of safe conduct. They seized him, put him in prison. There was no disputation. He had been a priest, and he still considered himself to be called of God. And so they took him, and they... They, they, they stripped him off his priestly robes and everything he had. And they said, will you recant? And he said, no, I'm going to do what the Bible says. And so they took him outside. And there was a stake with wood around it. And they tied him to the stake. And then the executioner strangled him to the point of death. He almost passed out. And he let him live. And they lit the fire, and he was gasping for air. And they put some, at that time, they, they'd put gunpowder on, on a bag around your neck so that when the fire got that high, it would blow your head off so you wouldn't suffer. So they were very humane the way they killed people. But, but as, as Tyndale was dying, he committed his life to the Lord. Right before they beat him, he fell on his knees and he prayed for the men who would kill him. Oh God, you can't make up this stuff. So the last thing he said as he gasped for breath was this, Lord, open the king of England's eyes to the gospel. And a few years later, the Anglican church was birthed in England and the Puritan century came in just 20 years later, William Tyndale. So I want to live well and die well. I want to live outside of myself. It's interesting. One of, the, one of the things they condemned John Hoos for in 1514 was that he had the audacity to take 
hymns about the gospel and print it in the language of the people. So the people, the early, they were singing people. There's a guy named Savannah Rolla in Florence a century and a half before who did the same thing. He loved the gospel and he started printing hymns in Italian and the people would sing hymns in the street. They said, you can't do that. They've got to be in Latin. You, how, how dare you tell people they can sing? They shouldn't be singing. They said, no, if you're a saved person, you're a singing person. You know, you want to sing. I, I, I love to sing. I wish I had more of a singing culture. Tonight at six o'clock, we're going to be singing. When you're saved by faith alone through the work of Christ alone and it's outside of your own experience, you want to sing. I believe that. God loves me not because of my performance, but because of Jesus. I want to sing about that. 